I've been interested in this new phenomenon, the sped up time lapses of growing flowers. When they blossom, there are new petals and colors that emerge, ones that I didn't even see coming. This episode's investigation was just like that. New things kept popping up, and it all started with a flight logbook from World War II. Because in a sense, it writes the history of the aircraft. Most surprisingly, the answer to the identity of the soldier was right in front of me the whole time. And the police stopped the bus in Brunswick, and both of us looked at each other and just got up and got off the bus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just one of those things you just knew. Welcome to Object Obscura. This is the Historical Investigative Podcast about people, objects, and their stories. I'm your host, Thatcher Warwick Hess. Episode 13, Flights, Factory, Father. Hey, Thatcher, how's it going? Hey, Dave, how are you doing? Doing well. I'm uh, actually in Boston uh, on a layover here and heading to L.A. later tonight. So, This is Dave, who is a friend of my dad's. He's actually talking to me in between commercial flights here. My name's Dave. I'm currently a commercial airline pilot, and I just took interest in the story that you had from uh, your project. About five years ago, I bought a World War II flight logbook online. When I sent Dave pictures of the book, he was intrigued, not only because he's a pilot, but because he's ex-military. I was a naval aviator winged uh, in the mid-90s, and I served uh, just over nine years active duty. So basically a lieutenant pilot in the, in the Navy. So this book I have is interesting. It's a rectangular beige book full of perforated log entry pages. On the bottom of the World War II book is Keesler Field, Mississippi. Although these days, flight log books are done digitally, Dave has used physical log books throughout his piloting career. From a personal standpoint, I have a pilot log book and I have uh, my naval aviator log books from when I was in the service and uh, I keep those. Uh, somewhere where I can always know to find them because in a sense it writes the history of the aircraft. In fact, the flight I flew in this morning, you know, recorded basically the date, the origin, destination, and whether or not I did the landing. My logbook is a little more complex because there are two separate forms. The cover of this book says Flight Reports, Air Corps Forms 1 and 1A. Then it states the instructions for filling out each form in case of a forced landing. But I certainly, I saw that note on the cover page, I believe it was. There is a requirement, it says, that pilots are required to report each forced landing. But I can't tell necessarily whether this form is more for a basic flight, but there there may be either another form or something you would note on this form that would demonstrate a forced landing. So essentially, as it says on the cover, the book informs soldiers to log all weather and non-material landings on Form 1 and all mechanical and material failures on Form 1A. And the soldier did just that on the first two pages, one flight entry for non-material landing and another for mechanical failure. These first pages are chock full of filled in boxes. 
gasoline numbers, mileage, crew members. And on the top of Form 1, it says that this was an engineering student's book. I flipped through all 50 pages, alternating from Form 1 to Form 1A. But then something in the back of the book fell out. We can also note that there is the hydraulic uh, system drawn out, and that may be that since our person of interest is listed as the engineer and studying that, it makes sense, a, a more mechanical type position. What Dave is talking about here is a folded up paper of a hydraulic system of a B-24 destroyer bomber plane. It lists all the parts of the plane's hydraulics that correspond to the drawing of overlapping pipes. So most likely, a young soldier was drafted into the Army Air Force's Technical Training Command. This was the larger effort launched by the U.S. government in the summer of 1943 to train pilots, engineers, and navigators. But who was the soldier that owned this book? I looked through the handwritten notes on the first pages and on the front cover. I saw that he dated his flight logs May 4th, 1943. I also saw a name, but I didn't know how to pronounce it. The last name was C-O-M-E-A-U. Como. Otis J. Como. Here's where this gets interesting. Something else on the front cover that I originally missed changed the whole trajectory of this story. It says, reproduced for student use only. One on the cover talked about that it was uh, student use only, so this may have been a training uh, evolution or training school kind of thing. So that means that this personal log booklet was possibly about a mock flight exercise. It wouldn't be the official record. The official record, whether it's a logbook for the airplane uh, or even for someone who was uh, air crew, say a pilot, those would tend to be kept with the plane. It, those records are very meticulous. It wouldn't be something you would take home, say. So all the fuel gallon numbers and names of the crew on the second page could be all made up. Even the specific B-24 name and serial number he wrote in the book could be bogus. It could have been an imagined flight. Sometimes you might do something called an out-in. You might leave your base, you might fly somewhere, you know, have lunch or, or take, a, take a stop, uh, service the aircraft, and then fly back. We used to do that with students from Meridian, Mississippi, which is fairly close by. But it's just hard to tell where the origin, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily see an origin or a destination. Again, not sure if that means it's sort of an imagined flight in this case, or if uh, it is part of a plane flying down to Keesler and then back, that kind of thing. This is all possible. I was first struck with the fact that Dave had actually been to Meridian Base, quite close to Keesler, where Mr. Como had this book. Keesler is uh, Gulf Coast, Biloxi area, and uh, I flew approaches into Keesler here and there. I did fly an exercise for about two weeks out of the Gulfport Airport, which is close by. And uh, it's pretty typical Gulf Coast uh, in the summer. It's going to be muggy. Uh, you're going to get the afternoon thunderstorms, sort of a sticky, humid, and, uh, and, and warm in that time of year. I was curious to see any records to find Como's family. And maybe they were connected to the hot Mississippi area. When I put in his name in an archive of all enlisted men in World War II, two Otis Comos came up. So I had to do some digging. found a census marriage record of a man named John Como. His middle name was Otis, and on that document, his father was listed as Otis J. Como. So with more ancestral research, I found the son's online resume. I wrote up a letter and was excited to hear his stories, but the night before I printed out the letter, I needed to check something. 
I felt that I should check the source of the purchase first, which was Etsy. My mom got it for me, so I looked on her account and saw that she bought the flight book in 2016. The online shop was still active. I looked at the description of the flight book and saw a reference that the woman who sold it to us was Otis's daughter. I messaged her and arranged a time to call. My name is Ellen Reinhardt. I'm a registered nurse, and my dad was in World War II as a bombardier. The voice you hear is Ellen Reinhardt, Otis J. Como's daughter. But she grew up with her dad in Maine, nothing like the Mississippi area I originally thought. Growing up, we learned how to shoot when we were very, very young. Went duck hunting with him, partridge and pheasant hunting. We learned to fish at a very young age. We had a camp on a lake, so we always went fishing. He taught us how to sail. Ellen was born in 1955 in Skohegan, a very wooded forest town in central Maine. They had a very outdoorsy childhood, with a lake, garden, and forest essentially in their backyard. Well, I guess now you call us preppers because back then you learned how to can, you learned how to hunt, you learned how to clean meat, you learned how to build things in the woods, you learned how to use tools, you learned how to change your own tire, the oil, you know, we did all that. He was also very resourceful, as he mostly grew everything the family ate. When Dad was home, we'd, we'd go walking in the woods, identifying uh, herbs, identifying plant life, uh, hunting. My mom was big into flowers and herbs and, and a huge garden. Otis was a very good cook and would make these immaculate salads. He had a creative side with salads. He'd make like a cabbage lettuce salad and then he'd decorate it with carrots and olives. It'd be the Eiffel Tower. I just, I don't know whatever happened to photographs, but my mother used to photograph the salads he made because they were wow. just works of art. <laughs> it is so amazing to hear the stories of a man beyond the object's confined context. Ellen is describing her childhood 20 years after he wrote the things in the logbook in 1943. Otis J. Como was born in 1924 in Cornville, Maine, to Fidel and Mary. Uh, as a young kid, I know he had a pony. They lived on a farm. He had one sibling, a, a sister, that was quite a bit younger than him. It seemed that they lived well enough during the Great Depression. I asked about his surname, Como. It was French-Canadian. Is his last name, is it Como? Am I pronouncing that right? Yes. That's okay. pronounced right. Very good. Most people mutilate it. From my research, Simon Como, who lived in New Brunswick, Canada, was Otis's grandfather. I had a picture of his grandfather, who was over seven foot tall, you know, one of the original lumberjacks from Canada. <laughs> In the 1890s, Fidel, one of Simon's six children, immigrated to Maine. Nearly 40 years later, Fidel had Otis with Mary. Otis lived on the farm and graduated from Skohegan High School in 1942, just one year before he signed his name in the logbook. So before his college dreams could happen, he wanted to fight in World War II. Here's Ellen again. He didn't talk a lot about the war. I know he came home with shrapnel on his leg. And I think it was his left leg, but it might have been both legs. I can't remember. But he never talked about the bomb that went off. So I don't know anything about how he got the shrapnel. All I know is when it, the rain would be coming, he'd be achy. <laughs> I can't imagine that feeling. I did a little digging on Mr. Como to see if this injury came up in any medical records. The only thing that I could find was that he was discharged in 1945 for having acute pharyngitis, a severe irritation of the throat that can affect swallowing. Ellen told me some harrowing war stories about her father. But in terms of his rank and where this flight book fits in is a bit of a mystery. So I asked her to send me an email with some pictures. I wanted to see what her dad looked like. She actually sent me tons of pictures. Mr. Como squatting in front of a plane, 
war patches, currency he brought back from different countries, and the last few actually looked familiar. I slowly turned my head to my World War II collection and saw the same picture and Mr. Como that she sent me in the email on my shelf. I actually had three pictures of Otis already in my World War II collection that had been looking at me this whole time. And get this, I also had a diploma in a plastic sleeve that was Mr. Como's as well. When I was looking at the shelf and I saw at the top there was this diploma that also had your father Otis's name on it. Is that what you were doing for the Etsy thing too when you were selling the flight report? Did you also give the diploma as well? I may have, I don't remember, but okay. like I said, I don't have any kids and it's not gonna go anywhere, so I'm just passing it on. I feel honored to have these items that belong to her dad. So it looks like Ellen packaged them with the flight report book in the purchase. I actually remember my mom giving me a bunch of things, saying that they all belonged to one soldier. I just had no idea it was these particular objects, since I spread out my collection. Let's start with the pictures. Two are smaller wallet-sized photos, and the other is a large souvenir picture of Otis sitting with two other soldiers in a restaurant. It was one picture with three guys and uh, the flags behind them, and I don't know if I sent you that one or not, but that, I think, was the base. These are the photos that she had already sent with the flight book five years ago. Otis Como is very young in these pictures. He's 19, with a baby face smile and short brown hair. In the smaller pictures, like Ellen describes, he's standing with three other Air Force soldiers, hands around their shoulders. The other one is with a high-ranking officer in front of a 412th Technical School Squadron sign. As Ellen said, these are taken at Keesler Field Base. The diploma, however, is a different story, one that actually answers some questions. It is from the Army Air Force's Technical Training Command, AAFTC, awarded to Mr. Como for completing his course for airplane mechanics the day after Thanksgiving in 1943. So this is six months after he fills in the possibly fake flight in the logbook. I had so many questions, and most of them start with the writing in the logbook. I went back to Pilot Dave, who we heard earlier in this episode. What were some of the positions of the people in, in this squadron like on page two? What were some of the codes that we determined? I think we went through and from top to bottom, uh, P for pilot, CP, I think that's co-pilot. Line three, N is likely navigator, B likely bombardier, R was possibly radio man. Also below that, the two Gs were probably gunner. I believe that aircraft had two, two gunners in it. The E would have been uh, engineer, and of course, in that case, uh, that seems to be the person we are interested in. And all this checks out. Most B-24 Liberator planes had up to 10 in the crew. I even emailed a historian at the National Museum of World War II Aviation in Colorado. Most likely, this was just a training exercise. But just to make sure, we put the information Otis wrote in the book to a test. On page two, he wrote a specific serial number for the consolidated bomber plane that had supposedly crashed. The historian at the museum told me that this particular plane was assigned to a different base in Kentucky, and that there was only one accident report on the day Como signed the book, and that crash was in Texas. So this all proves that this flight info was indeed an exercise, and not based on a real force landing. In the training process, they had to make sure millions of these young new recruits were ready for anything, and the student flight book is an example of that. 
These men are aviation cadets. A short while ago, they too were average American boys from average American families. They were preparing these young men to head out overseas and, uh, and fight World War II. I think people lose track of just how much training has to go on, and it's not just building airplanes, it's not just having parts and you know being able to have them fly. You need to train people to make sure they can uh, do the mission as well, and the numbers are pretty overwhelming if you look to see just how many people would have been going through such training and then moving on overseas. If you're 17, you can enlist in the Air Corps Reserve. You'll be called to training soon after your 18th birthday. Men between the ages of 18 and 26 can go into training immediately. The Army Air Forces needed technical schools and programs. In just five years, the Army Air Forces grew more than a hundred times its size, 20,000 recruits in 1939 to 2.4 million by 1944. Keesler Field was one of those training centers opened in 1941, a $10 million undertaking that was Mississippi State's most expensive government project at the time. I imagine it was fairly stressful. I imagine it was a lot of new information, especially if people had come from off the farm or wherever, but coming from all corners, not necessarily having technical backgrounds, varying states of uh, education. So, you know, you need to bring them together, all these people from different places, and, and put them through a program that produces, you know, a very solid and standardized training. Otis Como was one of millions in this effort to become the best young military mechanics and bombardiers there could be. After he got his diploma as a private first class, he became a technical sergeant and fought overseas in Italy, France, and Africa. He did actually have a plane crash accident later in the war. Here's his daughter, Ellen, again. When he was either in France or someplace like that, he was showing out and flew under bridge and it took away his wings. <laughs> I'd asked Ellen if he ever was a pilot and knew how to fly a plane. Since he was an engineer and bombardier, she told me that he might have during the war, but never flew after. So I don't know if he ever actually flew or not. Well, I know he flew under the bridge, but I don't know if that was, <laughs> if he was supposed to have taken the plane or not. <laughs> Let me put it that way. <laughs> Unlike the 10th Bomb Squadron written in the logbook, Otis was later in the 98th group of the 415th Bombardment Squadron. This group went to the Mediterranean theater, and its targets were to bomb shipping ports in North Africa, Italy, and Greece, from 1942 to 1945. And Otis was a technical sergeant in this squadron by 1944. I asked Ellen if any of the names in the logbook could be the men in the pictures, or if he stayed in touch with anyone from his squadrons after the war. I did not expect this answer. He stayed friends with a lot of the people I guess he met in the military. One of his friends was Charlie Sweeney, who dropped the bomb on Nagasaki. And we used to call him Uncle Charlie because he came to the house a lot. Yeah, I didn't see that coming. Charles Sweeney was the pilot of the boxcar B-29 bomber that held the Fat Man atomic bomb about to be dropped on Nagasaki on August 9th, 1945. This is Major Charles W. Sweeney of Quincy, Massachusetts. Major Sweeney, give us some of the details of the whole flight. Uh, we were briefed on, of course, a primary and a secondary target as usual. We, uh, took off and the flight was uneventful except for some weather on the way up. Uh, the uh, primary target was located and uh, we made uh, three runs on it but were unable to get into it. This is Charles Sweeney interviewed on August 14th 
just five days after piloting the plane that dropped the bomb on Nagasaki, and eight days after the first bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. Just to recap what he's talking about here, the United States had originally targeted the second atomic bomb to drop on the city of Kokura, but due to some heavy fog and unexpected weather, they changed the course to Nagasaki, a small port town south of Kokura. We uh, picked our route into the secondary target and uh, dropped it on Nagasaki. Very relieved to have it go. Much more relieved when we saw the tremendous flash and know that it had functioned. This destruction is what caused Japan to surrender a day after Sweeney gives that interview, essentially ending World War II. Here's Ellen again about the time she spent with Charles Sweeney, who she calls Uncle Charlie. Uncle Charlie was probably the closest one. Uh, most of the time he just brought him over for a meal and to talk, and they didn't stay very long, maybe a couple hours, and that was it. It is sad to think that Mr. Como, like many other wartime vets, made friends from horrific experiences that changed history's trajectory. It makes me question how many tough situations Como was in himself in Africa and Europe. Did he have his own Nagasaki bomb drop moment? Otis Como did have another companion with him during his station abroad. Apparently when he was in Africa, he had a monkey. He had this pet monkey and they go into restaurants apparently in Italy and the monkey would be there, and the monkey would pick fleas off himself and drown them in the drinking water. <laughs> so he always used to carry the picture of the monkey in his wallet, which I actually still have the mon picture of the monkey, but it's, it's very faded. <laughs> the only reason I know it's the monkey is because of the stories he told. After the war, Otis actually went to Oxford School of Business and was a car guy. He then married Judith Page in 1953 in Maine. Within the next decade, they would have three kids together, John, Jim, and Ellen. I believe it was Ellen's older brother, John, that I originally wrote a letter to about this flight book. Como's post-war occupation was working at a shoe factory. He was detail-oriented. He was a very smart man. He was a purchasing agent for the shoe company, because Maine had a lot of shoe factories back then. He traveled quite a bit for the shoe factory. Otis worked at the Norwalk Shoe Company for 22 years and made a lot of great friends there. He got very high up in the company as a purchasing director. On lunches in between work, he loved to play games with Judy and the kids. He and my mom, they loved to play cards. And Dad would, <laughs> Dad would come home for lunch after us kids were in school. The shoe factory wasn't too far away. So he would come home at noontime, and he and my mother would play cards. And when we came home from school, we would always know who won, because if my father won, <laughs> my mother would be in the kitchen slinging around pots and pans and just grumbling. <laughs> And Dad would come home whistling, <laughs> and everybody, I'm sure, at work wondered why he'd come back from lunch whistling and happy, and they probably assumed the wrong thing about lunchtime. <laughs> but we were big into games. You're talking a little bit about how they're competitive with each other, but when you all played board games, were they also competitive in front of you guys? Oh, heck yeah. I mean, none of us won by default. We had to earn it. He loved technology and toys. They were also a family who loved languages, as Ellen and her brothers were in French, German, and Latin school clubs. But one memory sticks out to Ellen the most, a very tranquil string of memories. And we were one of the first vehicles to have three seatbelts in the back seat for us kids. I remember he had them put them in special for us. Yep. We always went on Sunday drives. He would drive fast. 
And my mother said, oh, look at... And by that time, Dad said, do you want to stop? Well, no, it's too late now, Otis. <laughs> so he loved to drive fast, even if it was a station wagon. He had a DeSoto car early on, a car that Ellen believes was one of the reasons her mom Judy fell for him. But after the marriage, he would only have black station wagons and go on these joy rides. We went to some weird places as kids. We went to a place called Slab City Cemetery. We had a picnic lunch, and it was an old cemetery up in a mountain next to a fire tower. I remember that. And we just hiked our way up there. So we did have destinations when we, we went fast, so I think a lot of it went, was looking forward to that. We always were entertained, mm. and we'd usually come home after dark on Sunday. We'd be gone the whole day. Unfortunately, Ellen and her brothers didn't get to know their dad into adulthood. Now, you got to remember, this was a long time ago because Dad died when I was still a kid. And, and if you are comfortable answering, how, how did Otis pass? Uh, Widowmaker, heart attack. He mm-hmm. said he was tired, went day down, took a nap, and that was it. He was gone. Both my other brother and I were on a bus going to a football game. And the police stopped the bus in Brunswick, and both of us looked at each other and just got up and got off the bus. <laughs> I mean, it was just one of those things you just knew that they were stopping the bus to take you off. Yeah, I guess my mom had tried CPR, and uh, the ambulance went to the wrong address. They thought she said Alder Street, and (laughs) they went to the wrong address. Not that they probably could have done anything anyway. Dad had had a complete physical the week before and said he was in perfect health, so you just don't know. Otis died on November 20th, 1971 at just 47 years old, and Ellen was just 16. Mr. Como's mother, Mary, lived much longer. Dad died before Grammy died, which made it kind of hard. We didn't keep up with the family much after that. I think Ma felt the worst for my little brother, Jim, because he was six, I think, when Dad died. So he didn't have Dad as long. Among the incredible things he did as a father, cooking, foraging, playing board games, and teaching them how to hunt, He also championed his children's independence. He raised us to be very independent people, to think independently, to do independently, to be self-reliant, to not be afraid of stuff. So I I think that's his greatest legacy, is is our love of knowledge, because all three of us did well in school, and we still, to this day, learn stuff, and to to be self-sufficient. Everyone grieves in their own way but it was especially hard for Ellen and her mom, Judy. Being two stubborn women, we had our times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My husband's laughing over here. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we did love each other. My mom was into making things with beads and stuff, and I have uh, inherited her bead collection. I have Aunt Nina's bead collection. I have my own, and I started collecting like at the age of eight. Talk a little bit about your, your Etsy shop. So you're making jewelry? Uh, mostly I do jewelry. And if it wasn't for this online shop, I don't believe Ellen would have sold her father's wartime objects. I'm glad that Ellen sold this book on her Etsy page five years ago. I do some vintage sales on Etsy, but it depends on what buyer I want. Like my dad's stuff, I'm not going to put on eBay because mm-hmm. it needs a certain person that's going to appreciate it, not just turn around and resell it. I want it passed on to someone that's going to appreciate it. I have appreciated every moment that these items have brought me. All three photos, the diploma, and the flight book from World War II are now all together resting on the same shelf. A wonderful reminder 
about a young soldier in his teens who grew up to be a father of three amazing children. Ellen still goes on drives to see Otis and Judy's gravestones. On her way to the Southside Cemetery, she passes by the abandoned Norwalk shoe factory, where her dad worked. A bittersweet reminder of a man that was full of life, who will be remembered as a soldier, but more importantly, as a father. Thank you for joining us on another Object Obscure Adventure, where every object has a story. We're going to post all the pictures of the book, pictures of Otis, and the diploma on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. We're also trying to put all the pictures on our website, too, but bear with us. This was a production of the Obscurity Podcast Network. Thank you to Pilot Dave for taking the time to talk about the World War II flight report book. And thank you to Ellen Reinhardt, Otis's daughter, for opening up about your personal life and sharing the stories of your amazing father, Otis Como. You can check out her Etsy store with the jewelry and other cool vintage things at Be Attitudes For You. Special thanks to all the other people who helped me out. Gene Pfeffer at the National Museum of World War II Aviation in Colorado, Mark Warren, and Ben Hess. This was an Anchor Distributed Podcast, produced, written, edited, scored, mixed, and fact-checked by me. The theme song is Behind the Walls by my great friend Nathany. Check out her amazing music on Spotify and Apple Music. All other song and archival credits are in the description. Please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Even if you're listening on something else, please go there and give us a star rating and even write a review. It really helps us out. You can also give us a donation. There's a PayPal donation button on our website, object-obscura.com. Anything helps us to investigate more amazing stories in the future. We hope that we can travel to meet each person face-to-face in a possible next season. Please feel free to write to us. You can send me an email at thatcher at object-obscura.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can write me about an object or a mystery you want discussed on the show, anything obscure, or just something cool about material culture. Next episode will come out in two weeks, on November 19th. We're going to another world war, 30 years before, and some singing will be in store. You know, I can't get them up, I can't get them up, I can't get them up in the morning. (laughs) I can remember my mother saying that um, they sang in German. See you then.